God of power, steady each of us as we strive to make sense of a fragmented world. We have lived in terror when we needed to be or to have safety. We have lived with portrayal and duplicity when we needed peace. We have had to isolate ourselves when we needed comfort and warmth. We have hidden and longed to be free. Help us to bear these losses. Help us to bear the time spent in anguish. Help us to bear the reality of the past. Bring us into that safe place where we may be open to receive the everyday comfort of this life, to love and to be loved, and to experience your grace. Amen. Thank you, Will. As we've mentioned, this is uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and so each week this month, we've taken a pause in our time together to stop, to do a prayer, to do a reading, and to um, raise awareness of this really important issue. Next Saturday, as you heard in the announcements, we're going to be doing a two-and-a-half-hour seminar in the morning, and I really want to encourage all of you to come out. It's going to be uh, a really important event, and it is put on by people from our church right here at Hope Covenant. Well, this series that we're in currently is on the kingdom of God. It's called Unexpected, the surprising nature of the kingdom of God. And so that's what we're talking about. And a couple weeks ago, I started off this series by setting up a contrast for us, talked about how the kingdom of this world works one way and the kingdom of God works another way. The kingdom of this world we described as being uh, run by the power of the sword. We called that power over, whereas the kingdom of God is about the power of the cross, it's about power under. See, the kingdom of this world uh, seeks to dominate, seeks, seeks to force, seeks to get my way, get what I want, to take what I want, to win at all costs. So in the kingdom of this world, uh, as long as I win, it doesn't matter how I win. And actually, if somebody is on my side or our side, we will ignore how they do what they do or how they say what they say because, after all, we all know the ends justify the means in the kingdom of this world, anyway. See, that's the way of the world. That's the way of the world that we live in. But then along comes Jesus with a radically different and unexpected message. And he comes preaching the kingdom of God, which instead of being about the power of the sword, is the power of the cross. And instead of seeking power over, it looks for the way to have power under. And, and Jesus shocks his disciples by saying things to them like, the greatest among you, and they all wanted to be the greatest. <laughs> That's why they were hanging around. They wanted to be the greatest. The greatest among you, he said, will be the servant. 
a radically upside down message. And so we've been looking at this unexpected, surprising nature of the kingdom of God, the, the way of living into his reality. And specifically, these past few weeks, we've looked at how power dynamics work. And the question uh, over all of this is really, how does life in, in God's way, in God's story, play out so very differently from life in the way of the kingdom of this world. And so today, related to Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I want to look at how does that power dynamic play out in relationships between men and women. And I want to wonder how will the relationship between men and women look differently when we live it out according to God's way, his design, his story, instead of the same old story of the kingdom of this world. Uh, let me ask it this way. The dynamics of the relationship between men and women have, for all of history, really, as we know it, they've been fraught with, with tension and power and struggle, control, manipulation and violence. I mean, that's the way that it works in the kingdom of the world, right, where it's ultimately about power over. But as the people of God, we're called to relate very differently with one another. In fact, the original design of men and women before the fall was to be naked and unashamed. See, Adam and Eve, not just physically naked, but completely open, emotionally, spiritually, no hiding, no faking, no pretending, no trying to control one another, no manipulating. See, God's design before the fall was that kind of beauty. But, but then it all got messed up, didn't it? <laughs> um, <clears throat> But then fast forward to Jesus, which we'll look at in this message. And one of the things that Jesus came to restore was that relationship between men and women to bring it back to a place of shalom, of, of, of peace. And so for me, this message was prompted, um, first of all, by the month that we're in uh, with the domestic violence awareness, but then particularly this, this um, upcoming Saturday's event that we're hosting here. And, uh, my wife and I will be some of the speakers at that. Um, but then I really knew that I felt like we couldn't ignore this when I started to see the Me Too hashtags and posts that were trending. And any of you that are on social media probably saw this this week. Um, I mean, this all started uh, more than a week ago with kind of a pile of allegations against a Hollywood producer. But then soon, um, people started pouring out their personal stories. Uh, women in all industries around the world, not just actresses and people in that industry and not just him, and that hashtag Me Too became a rallying cry and a good one against sexual assault and harassment. And that movement, um, at least in this incarnation, it began a long time ago, but it was really revived by an actress, uh, Alyssa Milano, um, who was a huge critic of this movie producer who um, she wrote this, she wrote, um, this is what kicked it off, she wrote, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Within days, after she posted that, millions of women and some men used Twitter, Facebook, Instagram to disclose the harassment and abuse that they have faced in their own lives. And I have not been on much social media this week, but enough to actually have my heart break um, to see some of my friends post Me Too um, that I didn't know. 
and my own sister, um, who I'm so close to, post Me Too, and some courageous women right here in our community post Me Too. And that's so courageous. I mean, to shine a light on that dark place, to be willing to risk and be vulnerable, I mean, that is the kingdom of God. That's the power of the cross kind of courage if I've ever seen it. And I believe that God honors that kind of courage. He really, really does. But I also know, because I read more than I wish I would have on (laughs) some of these in the comments or other posts, um, that there's probably something important to say to people who have not been abused, or people who have not been violated. And I want to speak especially to uh, maybe men um, who would think, or some of the comments that I actually saw here and there, uh, that people said things like, oh, come on, what's the big deal? Why do we have to bother with this stuff? You know, life is hard, get over it. That was a long time ago. And that just made me cringe. It made me angry. (laughs) Um, And that kind of stuff, just it's so self-centered. It's so disrespectful. Um, I think those are the words of cowards. (laughs) It's very, 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 very unlike the words in the heart of Jesus. And some of these folks profess to be Christians. Um, And I know from working in a treatment center with women and girls uh, for a number of years, in their spiritual direction area, that one of the greatest fears any victim has about speaking out, about breaking the silence, uh, is the thoughtlessness, the cold-hearted comments by people who try to invalidate their experience. Um, So I just want to say, as a church, as a pastor here, to those of you that bravely shared, uh, and to those of you that compassionately listened and supported, I applaud you. I applaud you. And my heart goes out, and I have the greatest respect for you and your courage. Um, as I was talking, I, there's an older lady from a different church said to me uh, about this week, well, so what are you preaching about? And, and she goes, wait a minute, like sexual assault and abuse and, and how women get treated? Like, people don't talk about that in church, do they? <laughs> and, and, you know, sadly, no. Um, it's mostly in the news or social media or talk shows and I just have to say, though, that if we are truly a people who declare that we here at Hope are a church where imperfect people belong, where God moves, where lives change, where love acts, then we've got to talk about this stuff. Like, this is the kind of kingdom of God community where the healing power of the cross is on display. And so between those hashtag me too and our, and our Ava conference on Saturday, I just couldn't ignore that I think God's at work here and is calling us to pay attention. So as I read more and, and asked more questions uh, and studied more, this is a, a subject that I've paid attention to for a long time. And seriously, I wish, I wish we could do a class on this um, for like four to six weeks and, and cover all kinds of issues about Uh, women in the Bible, and also why we here at Hope uh, believe that women are empowered to be elders and full participation and leaders in in the church, Um, that the evangelical covenant denomination we belong to, that's what we believe as a denomination, which sadly, if if you're newer to the church, um, that that take, that position um, is not the take of the majority of the churches in in our area here. 
But we strongly believe that, and uh, maybe at some point, if enough of you uh, want it, we'll, we'll do a class on that on a, on a Monday night or something, and I could do my best to make that happen. But, but just today, with this week, I want to talk about this because the whole issue of how women are treated and seen exists um, in the church as well. Uh, the church at large, not as much here, but, but even each one of us have lies that infect our relationships. And... I believe that if we want to get free, we have to shine a light on this stuff and walk into the light, walk into truth. And if we want to be followers of Jesus on this stuff, then we need to know what he's calling us to. And, and Jesus calls us to abandon the ways of the kingdom of this world, uh, the ways of getting power of the sword, power over, abandon that path and begin to live in the kingdom of God, the power of the cross, that power under path. So to do this... I want to go back to the beginning of the Bible. And by the way, I won't be able to cover everything. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, maybe we do that, that Monday class. Maybe we do need that there, yeah. Uh, let's go back here to Genesis chapter 1. A little overview here of creation in verse 26. Uh, God said to mankind, or God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So, they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air, the livestock and all the wild animals over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Everyone said, that sounds like fun. Yeah, right, okay. It's supposed to be fun, all right. Um, now, I'm not going to take a bunch of time on this part here, but I just want to point something out from the scripture here, uh, and that is that God is neither male nor female. Um, oftentimes, we use masculine imagery to describe God, but here it says that he makes humankind in his image. Now, some translations used to say, let us make man in our own image. This one here even says mankind, but the Hebrew word for this is to make humankind. Very clearly in the Hebrew, it's to make humankind. And it says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So just two quick things from this. It really takes both masculine and feminine to fully reflect the image of God. Like, God is not just a man. And so women, you are not somehow a lesser reflection of the image of God because you're a woman. So the second thing is that that both male and female are created in his image, and so that means something about how we treat all people. Um, because we are created in God's image, when women get objectified or assaulted or sidelined, we, the people of God, we need to pay attention because that person is made in the image of God. We have to find ways to come around and support, to listen, to help move toward healing. This is the call of God as we follow Jesus. Now, in Genesis 2 here, moving on in the story, we get a little more detail about what the creation of man and woman looked like. See, God had placed Adam in a garden and, and told him about this tree that he's supposed to stay away from. And by the way, you know, he had to have a choice, right? Otherwise, he'd have just been a robot. So there was a choice to obey, not to obey. Um, we know where that ends up. But before then, um, here he is. It's just, it's just Adam. And God said, verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals, the birds of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, all the wild animals, but for Adam, next slide, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man and brought her to the man, and he says, whoa. Oh, sorry, he says, um, uh, oh, he does what we do, right? He starts reciting poetry. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father, is united to his wife. They become one flesh. And look at this verse. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. I mean, can you imagine just even that last verse? Uh, intimacy, um, emotionally, oneness. There's nothing hidden. And that was God's intent for men and women. Free to be open, to be real, to be honest. No need to protect or control or hide I mean, that's the original design. This is what God aims us towards. That's how God made us. Now, in the passage here, we saw the word, gave him a helper. Eve is given to Adam as his, and here's the Hebrew here, Ezer Kenegdo, or as many translations have it. Some say his helpmeet or his helper. And honestly, you know, when you read that phrase, it doesn't sound like much, does it? It makes me think of, you know, helper. Oh, hamburger helper, right? I mean, it's... You know, and let me just admit how dumb I am. Growing up, I always had kind of this idea when I read this story that, you know, uh, especially because I was male, um, uh, am male, am male. Um, I, I had the idea that that God must have meant for a woman to be the kind of junior assistant for the man. You know, I thought, wow, you know, the man has lots to do. He can't get all these jobs done by himself. So God kind of gave him this gopher that was maybe, you know, a little lower on the org chart who could delegate stuff to, well, he was out subduing the earth, right? A helper. <clears throat> and all the women said, boo, hiss. Yeah, just go ahead and boo me. Yeah, that's okay. Thank God <clears throat> even dumb people like me can learn. Um, this helper word is really a notoriously difficult word to translate. Uh, a guy named Robert Alter says it means something far more powerful than just a helper. This word actually means lifesaver. <laughs> he gives, God gives Adam a lifesaver, not the candy. He gives the lifesaver. And this phrase, this word here is used elsewhere in scripture, but when it's used in other places, it's actually used talking about God, when you need God to come through desperately for you. Uh, one of the many places, Deuteronomy 33, there is no one like the God of Jehushrin, who, I don't know how to say that, just be honest here, <clears throat> who rides on the heavens to help, and the word there is azer, to help you. See, the helpmate thing, it's not a a gopher who does all the stuff that men don't want to do, this helpmate, the Hebrew, Hebrew Ezer Kenegdo, means to rescue, to save. It actually means the strong one. So unless we want to, so if you want to call your wife or women, you know, well, they're the, you know, the next one down on the org chart, then we'd have to, by extension, say the same thing about God. So unless you want to call God your secretary, your gopher, your administrative assistant, your maid, we might want to rethink what we think of women and being the helper or the helpmate. 
in light of this scripture. Because in Genesis 2.18, which we read up there, if we read that in the original Hebrew language, um, we would read it saying, I will make a power or a strength corresponding to a man who will be rendered equal to him. Like that would be the literal translation. So God makes for the man a woman fully and equally his match. And in this way, it alleviates his uh, loneliness. Now, this line of, of thinking here, which stresses full equality, it's continued when Adam quotes his poetry, right? He says of Eve, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And bone of my bone, again, is another way of saying she is our equal. See, a woman was not meant to be an assistant or, or just a gopher for the man. And actually, the, the word help mate slipped into the English because it was close to the old English word for meat, and it just started getting translated that way and misinterpreted and carried the wrong way. See, God's intention was that there would be a power or a strength for the man that would correspond with him in every way. See, Eve is a life giver, literally, and she is Adam's ally. And it is to both of them that this charter for the adventure of life in this world is given. It will take both of them to sustain life. They will need to fight for it together. The charter for, from God to Adam and Eve and to us was to subdue the earth that was given to both of them, not just Adam. So that's, again, this is the design from the beginning. It's mutual love. It's partnership. But then the story continues and here is where it all goes awry. This is where sin enters the picture. A serpent comes, tempts Eve. We'll pick it up in chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then both of their eyes were opened, they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because <clears throat> I was naked, so I hid and God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And <clears throat> guys, here's where we get it right here, okay? Uh, the man said, the woman that you put here with me, ah, she gave me some fruit, a pot, I, and I ate it, I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And she said, the serpent deceived me, and, and I ate and the serpent is cursed by God. And then to the woman, God said, verse 16, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire, here's the verse we're going to focus on, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So I want to stop here on this because a lot of people use this verse to prove that, you know, women are subservient or lower to men or whatever. Um, some people try to use this to prove that, well, sin entered the world through a woman, um, it's her fault, but where, where was Adam when the serpent came? He was right there, right? Serpent's talking to her, the Hebrew word is they were shoulder to shoulder. They're right 
there. <laughs> I mean, come on, Adam, like, grow a spine, you know, get a shovel, kill the snake, something. He just, just goes passive. He goes passive. Um, it was both, it was both of them. Now, let me explain about the curse, that last verse there. Desire, um, the Hebrew words here for desire. Um, you know, as a young guy, of course, I was like, hey, sweet, my wife is going to desire me. Oh, this is going to be awesome. Um, only that's not what that desire word means. Uh, when you translate it, that word actually means it's connected to idolatry, that the desire of the wife, part of the curse, is her turning toward her husband instead of God, which is idolatry, which leads to control, manipulation, unhealthy grasping of power over kinds of relationships. So that's the curse. Uh, and then he will rule over you, translated, he will try to control, manipulate, and exercise unhealthy power over strategies in his relationship with you as well. So look what we have. It turns from naked and unashamed to unhealthy power over strategies. Um, it's the curse. <laughs> it's the curse. Um, I mean, people sometimes read this verse at weddings, like... <laughs> very solemn, very wonderful. Your desire will be for your husband and he... Oh, we'll leave that second part out, right? Yeah. Um, it's the curse. Why do we live the curse? Like, people think this is God's plan, that this is how we should live, that the husband will rule over the wife, her desire is just going to be for him. That's the curse, and that's not how it works. So I just simply would say to this, like, hey, don't live the curse. <laughs> don't pursue that. That's not what we're called to. That's the curse. We don't live the curse. Um, husbands, don't assume that your wife was created for the purpose of serving you. I, I heard about a, a marriage enrichment, enrichment weekend where the teacher said to everyone, he said, husbands, you ought to know your wife really well. You ought to know what her favorite flower is. And so one husband leaned over to his wife and said, ah, Betty Crocker gold medal flower, right, honey? Yeah. <laughs> Not a smart man. Okay, that was me. Just kidding, just kidding, yeah. Um, see, that's it, but it is. It's, it's the curse. It's the curse of who does what and who's the boss. And a friend of mine, Steve Weens, a covenant pastor in Minnesota, says this curse, it kicks off the conflict between men and women, and it's like a bad car crash. And since that day, all of history keeps just driving over the hill and crashing in and growing the pileup. See, men, um, women are not the enemy. <laughs> and women, men are not the enemy. Our enemy is the evil one. And right now, the enemy does not want there to be friendship or respect or honor between male and female. The evil one hates community, and when we see things like inequality or loss of community or disconnection between men and women, that's a part of the curse. And so therefore, it's part of what Jesus died to overcome. 
So women, let there be no doubt about your worth in God's eyes. You were made in God's image, not to be ruled over by men, but to rule and work side by side, to develop to its fullest potential this amazing world that God asks us to steward for him. And so as the story of God continues to unfold in the Old Testament, we we just watch this go awry, right? We see the car crash. We see how men take power and control, and women are increasingly relegated to places of, of dependence and oppression. These power over systems and structures use physical strength and coercion and control and dominance to keep men in power over women. And so now, because, because of the fall, this original design of co-ruling, of working side by side, that whole thing gets lost and God's plan for marriage gave way to polygamy. And you read through the Old Testament and just look at history where men could just collect wives like cattle. And then a wife, she could be divorced for putting you know, too much seasoning in his soup or talking too loud or burning the toast. Seriously. For any reason in that culture, in that day, you could divorce your wife. But the wives did not have the same right to divorce their husbands. So... By the time Jesus came, women were in a terrible position. And we get to the New Testament, um, though, and that's where it begins to turn. And believe me, it's taken a long time to turn, has it not, ladies? <laughs> um, it's still turning, but it is turning, and the kingdom is still advancing. Um, but one of the most striking features of Jesus' ministry is that Jesus was really unique among rabbis in his relationship with women. Uh, some rabbis probably had different practices, but, but generally women were thought to be inferior by all rabbis. One ancient rabbinic saying what it was, says that it was better for the Torah, so the law, uh, um, it was better for the Torah to be burned than taught to a woman. Like, think about that. A common prayer um, was, Blessed art thou, O God, for you did not make me a Gentile a slave, or a woman. Many devout rabbis would not even talk to a woman because it was thought that she was too tempting for guys to be able to handle it. There was actually a group of rabbis, I promise I'm not making this up, they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because if they saw a woman even out of their peripheral vision, they would close their eyes until they were sure she had passed out of their vision so they wouldn't see her and get tempted. And so they were forever bumping into trees and falling off curbs, Literally, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Um, so against that backdrop, look at this revolutionary attitude that Jesus has towards women. Let me just run through a couple of examples because we're getting short on time and we could talk about this one for a long time. Um, how about one day when Jesus was left alone by his disciples for a couple hours by a well in Samaria? Remember the story here? And then when his disciples finally return, they're surprised to find him talking with a woman. Now, why were they surprised? Because rabbis didn't talk to women. But Jesus did. And he didn't just talk to her. He engaged her with the longest single spiritual theological discussion he had with anybody recorded in the New Testament. That story's in there for a reason. And she actually becomes like this evangelist to the whole town that she lives in in Samaria. So to the first century readers that would read these accounts in the gospel, this was amazing, radical stuff. 
Uh, here's another thing Jesus did differently. He would actually let women touch him. Now, this would be really staggering for a rabbi in that day. And in Luke 7, here's a spot where there's a woman that's called a sinful woman, and she unloosed her hair, which was also illegal in Israel. It was thought that men couldn't handle it. And she did that so she could anoint Jesus' feet, and then he loved her like a sister and commended her faith. In another place, um, we find that Jesus... Uh, traveled with women. We see this in Luke's gospel. It says, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another. The 12, so his disciples, were with him, and also some women. Mary called Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Susanna, and many others. And these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, we just, in our day, we kind of skip over these passages. But again, do you have any idea how unprecedented this was in Jesus' day to have a rabbi traveling with a group of men and women that were relating to each other as brothers and sisters? And on top of that, the women were the ones helping bankroll his mission, helping fund it. Jesus not only didn't find that demeaning, he welcomed it. Another story, uh, Luke tells us about where, where, and this was a story lots of us hear, um, Mary and Martha. Right? Martha is busy in the kitchen, and she complains to Jesus, who is staying with them. Um, and he complains to Jesus because, or she complains to Jesus because Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to what he was saying. Now, this phrase here, to sit at the Lord's feet, it's a really important one. It's actually kind of a technical uh, term for being a rabbi's disciple. So just think about that. There is no record friends, of any rabbi before Jesus having a female disciple. It just didn't happen. Like in our day, we read this story and we're like, oh, this is about having that Mary temperament, you know, quiet and learning, or that Martha activist worker temperament. (laughs) Okay, I'm sure lots of books and sermons get preached that way, but that's not how the story would have been read by any first century reader. Any first century Um, reader of the Gospels would expect Jesus to agree with Martha. Hey, yeah, tell Mary to get busy doing stuff in the kitchen that a woman's supposed to do. Like the startling point of this story is the woman who gets commended by Jesus is not the one who played hostess and did what everybody expected her to do. The woman who's commended by Jesus is the one who became a student, a disciple of the rabbi who sat at his feet and learned from him. I'm so grateful (laughs) that, that, that I serve a savior who had the boldness to say, it's a new day for women. I want women to sit at my feet as well as men, to learn from me, to work with me, to be my disciples. Women continued to play a crucial role in the life of Jesus until the end when he was crucified. It was a small group of women who followed him all the way to the cross, who had that kind of courage. And the last one I want to mention is really important. In all four Gospels, we are told that women served as the first witnesses to the ultimate act of Jesus' ministry to his resurrection. Now, part of why this is so important is that women generally were not allowed to serve as witnesses in legal proceedings. In that culture, if someone committed murder and it was witnessed by, you know, a hundred women but no men, that guy'd probably go free. Didn't count. And this was so profoundly true of how women's uh, testimony was disrespected that when an early Gentile skeptic guy wanted, he was trying to discredit the resurrection. This is what he said. It's up on the screen here. But who saw this? That is the resurrection. 
a hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. In other words, even in the pagan circles, they dismissed the count of the resurrection because it was witnessed by women. But I think this is actually one of the really important marks of the historical fact of the authenticity of the resurrection. Because back then, if somebody was going to make up a story like the resurrection, nobody would have made up a story where women were the witnesses. Like, you would not have made that story up. But that's what happened. And that's what was the first proof. Now let me um, just wrap this up. Friends, as the people of God, we're called to relate very differently to one another than we do uh, in the world and even just how we've been brought up to in our culture and accustomed to even in a lot of churches. Remember, the original design of men and women from creation before the fall was to be unashamed, to be open, completely open, vulnerable, no hiding, no faking, no pretending, no trying to control each other, no manipulating. See, God's design before the fall was that kind of beauty. And when Jesus brought this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is so unlike the kingdom of this world that we live in, he invites us to live that way again, the before the fall kind of way, to love, to serve, to listen and so if, if you're a man, um, I want you to thank God for and cheer the women on in your life. Encourage them to realize their full potential. Like, cheer them on. Like, you will have no idea the difference that you will make. And men, if there's an attitude problem, um, if there's a pattern of diminishing women in any way, if there's mishandled sexuality if there is a conflict between you and your wife or somebody at work or somebody in your family or a friend, will you ask God, um, that'd change my heart. Will you ask God um, to help you be with women the same way that Jesus was with women, to treat women the same way Jesus did? And maybe there's somebody you're even kind of attracted to and you're tempted to mishandle that relationship. Take a step back, have some good boundaries, and ask God to change your heart so you see them as a sister. And what I want to say to the women is, um, I want you this week to thank God <laughs> that he made you the way he did. And to remember that you bear the image of God as fully as anyone in the world, especially if you've been in a place that sent you a different message. You bear the image of God just as fully as anyone else. So ask God to help you become all that he made you to be, not just for your sake, not just for more status or climbing the ladder or to get more power over someone else because they've had power over you. No, 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 no. Ask him to give you influence so that you can serve God's planet and help to bring hope and wholeness to humanity. Now I want to just give us two quick action steps for us to take this morning. The first one is um, I really want you to consider coming to our conference 9 o'clock Saturday right here again um, at the church. There will be a light breakfast, but I want to challenge you to come. And maybe you're like, well, I don't know anything about domestic violence. I haven't been involved in it. I haven't 
it doesn't matter. Whether you have or haven't, this is a place where we can show up and learn ways that we can be supportive of people that are going through this kinds of stuff. Because if a small pocket of people will begin to make a difference, will begin to take a stand, will begin to stop and speak up when they see something going on, rather than passively just kind of let it go, we can see more and more change being made in our culture that will move us toward being a kingdom of God kind of people. So I want to encourage you, if you're at all able to come on Saturday, to be there. And the second thing is, um, uh, Tracy, who works with us in the office here, she sent me a post from Facebook, uh, and we'll put this on the screen. It was a different hashtag, and this was for men. The hashtag is, I will. And here's what the guy who wrote this said. He said, if all the men who've heard women report sexual assault, harassment, objectification, and being made to feel uncomfortable by any unwanted sexual advance were to commit to interrupting that behavior, not allowing it to happen, and not minimizing women's concerns about these issues. If they wrote, I will, as a status, we might give people reassurance that there are men who are allies and will be agents for change. And men... <laughs> We can never be passive in the face of harassment or exploitation of women, of children, other men either. Um, men and women equally bear the divine image of our Heavenly Father and are worthy of dignity, honor, and advocacy because each one of us is beloved by God. So even as you leave today, when I dismiss you, sit back down if, and use your phone um, and, and hashtag the I will or look on our um, Hope Covenant Facebook page later uh, and copy and paste or share what we're going to put up on there as well. But I want to challenge you, just as a simple way of letting people know that you're a safe person, that, that they can lean on, talk to, you don't have to have any answers. <laughs> but you can join a crowd of folks, um, of men, who will offer that reassurance that the people of God, that men of God, are men who are allies and will be agents for change in these areas as well. Um, I'm going to pause and just let you sit in that for a moment, and then I'll pray. Just ask Jesus what he might have you do. Um, and maybe there's someone in your life even right now that you know could use a friend or some help. Just be open to what God might speak to your heart. Father, thank you. Um, thank you for the original design that you created, what you had in mind when you made men and women to reflect your image. And you know that we have gone so far from that. But we're grateful that you didn't give up on us and that you're calling us back to look for ways to love and serve each other, to relate as brothers and sisters, to support and not use to bring hope and healing, to bring repentance and change. Thank you for your goodness, your grace, your deep love, and the immense worth and value that you assign each and every one of us. Uh, we love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Will you stand with me for the benediction?
And now, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, the people of God, go in peace this week. Bring the love of Jesus and the light of Christ to every place your foot will tread. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.